0: I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were
1: internal conflicts in those countries, uh, and the international community decided to
0: help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to episode four of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. This week, I'm joined by Professor Damien Kingsbury of Deakin University, where he's the Director of the Master of International and Community Development. However, today's episode focuses on his experiences as an advisor to peace talks and brokering peace agreements. Damien Kingsbury, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. My great pleasure. I'm wondering if we could maybe start with you briefly just telling us about yourself and the kind of work that you're doing at the moment.
1: Well I'm an academic at Deakin University. I have a personal chair and I'm Professor of International Politics. I've just concluded, I've just written a book on uh, Politics in Developing Countries for Routledge, which will be published early in 2019. And we're now looking at the next book. Uh, It's a three-book contract I had with them, so we're now looking at the next book, which which will be the second of the three. And I think that one will be on separatism.
0: The topic of today's talk, of course, is is some work that you've done previously, which would be um, in negotiating peace talks. Yeah. Um, and and mainly focusing on your work in Aceh. I'm wondering if we could start maybe with the with the general Context of that conflict um, at the time and how it had sort of progressed by the time you became involved?
1: Yeah, look, Aceh is an interesting case Aceh was an independent sultanate historically it uh, had a history dating back um, well many hundreds of years um, arguably well over a century and and uh, for a while in the 16th century was probably the most powerful sultanate in the region. It was also that part of the uh, archipelago through which Islam came. So it's known as uh, Mecca's veranda for that reason, veranda of Mecca, Sarambi Mecca. Uh, So it has a strong Islamic influence um, and a long-standing Islamic influence. So Islam came to Aceh and spread from Aceh to the rest of the archipelago. The people of Aceh are quite mixed in many respects. Although there is um, an Achenese heartland, if you like, what Achenese say is because they have been at a a key trading point over many, many centuries, uh, their background is is, uh, genealogically mixed. So they have Indian influences, Arabic influences, African influences, European influences and so on. So they say, uh, if you look at a typical Acheanese, they all look different. Uh, it's not what an Achenese looks like, it's what's in their heart that makes them what they are. And uh, they're a very distinct and particular people, very, um, very proud. Anyway, so they were an independent saltmate up until 1873 when uh, the Dutch decided to incorporate Aceh into its expanding colonial possessions in the so called East Indies. Uh, a war ensued. It took uh, a couple of decades for the Dutch to sub- subdue the Achenese. Thereafter, there was a low level resistance right up until the time of the Japanese invasion in World War II. When uh, Japanese left Indonesia, what became Indonesia, the Dutch never went back to Aceh. It was just gave them too much grief and they had too much else on their plate. So they never went back. Aceh agreed to be part of Indonesia uh, just ahead of the period of independence but did so on terms which it thought would allow it a high degree of autonomy within a federated, uh, a federated state. What the Achenese were very disappointed to learn was very quickly that Aceh was subsumed into the greater province of northern Sumatra and that their hopes of federation essentially being independent but within a larger federated framework were, were dashed. So they went into rebellion. That lasted up until the uh, early 1960s. And then there was a period of relative peace between then and early 70s. uh, 1976, the rebellion broke out again. And this is a very simplified version. That rebellion went through phases of intensity, uh, generally speaking, three phases of intensity. I became interested in it probably during the third phase. Uh, that was a parallel my own research into Indonesian politics and in particular the role of the military in Indonesian politics. And uh, Aceh was a site in which the Indonesian military were heavily involved, uh, principally in trying to combat the Free Aceh Movement, the uh, Armed Independence Movement there. But also, uh, as they did elsewhere, running illegal businesses. Uh, uh, illegal activity uh, which was a source a very lucrative source of income for the Indonesian military so I developed an interest in it around that time was also East Timor's ballot for independence in 1999 and I was involved in that and short version is the atrocities committed by the Indonesian military in East Timor at that time were not just outrageous, but were perpetrated amongst or upon people I came to consider friends. And I was deeply shocked and angered, and I guess traumatised by that experience. And I thought I wanted to do something to even the score. And I know that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but it probably explained my motivation at the time. So I basically scooted up to Aceh, made some contacts and uh, was quickly welcomed into uh, the trust of the Free Aceh movement. I did have to prove myself. I had to go with the guerrillas into the jungle. I had to, they had to talk to me to decide whether I was trustworthy uh, and they voted on that. It was interesting. Uh, I was in a, in a in a hut surrounded by 20, maybe 30 armed guerrillas with their commander in the middle uh, and me sitting opposite him with a pistol in between us. And he placed this 9mm pistol in between us as a sign of neutrality because neither of us had the gun. Uh, And we had this conversation. Then he turned to his uh, his troops and he said, "Okay, so do we accept him or not? And they voted in favour. So I was taken into the group. There were a number of visits to Aceh over the next uh, year or so, and a lot of correspondence about various matters um, in relation to their struggle and in relation to what the Indonesian military was doing. I was eventually invited to meet with the leadership of the Free Aceh Movement, who were then uh, based in Stockholm in Sweden. And I happened to be in Europe for another event, so Stockholm was close, so I went by and visited them and we had a good conversation. And we talked about the options for a resolution to the conflict. Um, The leadership, in particular, the so-called Prime Minister, then, Malik Mahmud, said, well, thank you, that's all very interesting. That's not what we want to do, but we will stay in touch with you. And if we need you, may we get in touch? And I said, of course. Three, two months later, there was an agreement to hold negotiations uh, between the Free Aceh movement and the Indonesian government. Two days later, after that agreement had been reached to have those negotiations, a tsunami rose from the Indian Ocean and crashed into the shoreline of not just Aceh, but uh, southern Thailand, Sri Lanka. In Aceh, it killed probably 180,000, maybe more people. Devastated low-lying areas. And this impacted directly on the process of the talks that the Free Art Chain Movement had agreed to with the Indonesian government. I got a call um, a couple of days after the tsunami asking if I could be in uh, Stockholm in two days. I said, yes, I went to Stockholm. We went from there to Helsinki where the peace talks were being held. And I was one of two backroom advisers. Uh, and that first round of talks was essentially to see if talks could be held. it was to see if there was sufficient commonality to have a proper discussion we worked pretty hard at creating that groundwork for talks not so much because the Free freeho movement wanted to surrender or give in or give up its struggle but it didn't want to abandon a the possibility of proper talks, proper negotiations, and particularly at a time when the people of Aceh were suffering quite badly. Uh, This was within days of the tsunami, so it was uh, a pretty high-impact period still. Um, We managed to establish sufficient grounds for a second round of talks to be held. I was invited back, this time with, I think, about six hours' notice. I uh, got a phone call saying, "Can you be on a plane this afternoon?" and and it kind of went from there. So, I became increasingly involved, and much less as a backroom advisor and ultimately more as a planner and uh, assisting with coordination, and in fact, undertaking some of the negotiation myself.
0: I wonder um, what efforts have been previously made to bring the conflict to an end, either domestically or through international organisations.
1: The Indonesian government was at that time in a process of transition. So uh, Abdurrahman Wahid, uh, the first president of a post-Sahato Indonesia, post essentially post-dictatorship Indonesia, at the beginning of the period of democratisation, went to Aceh and said he would like to find a, an agreement, fi- find a way forward a se- for a settlement. Um, this did not really proceed very well. Abdurrahman Wahid's presidency was controversial. In particular, the Indonesian military were very uncomfortable with him. They wanted to retain uh, essentially the inside running on the Aceh process and they believed a the military victory was possible. This is after, mind you, um, three decade, almost three decades of conflict. They believed that they could find a military solution to to this separatist movement what they failed to understand was the longer they stayed in Arche, the more entrenched the desire for separation became that they were the drivers of the problem that their presence had created such grievance that their continued presence was motivation in itself for the rebellion to continue uh, Abdurrahman Wahid was removed from office in what amounted to a constitutional coup uh, fairly early on in his presidency. He was su- succeeded by Megawati Sukarnoputri. Megawati was much closer to the military and much more pro-military intervention. Now, I've got to point out that the military wanted to stay involved in Aceh because it gave them legitimacy in Indonesian domestic politics. If they had a domestic political ro- a domestic security role it gave them a, a domestic political role it also gave them uh, as I mentioned earlier access to lucrative uh, so- sources of income including uh, illegal income through smuggling uh, drugs sales weapons and and so on on the tail of Abdurrahman's intervention the Henri Dunant Nantes Center the HDC, uh, I think it's changed its name now, to the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, uh, based in Geneva, got involved, and they managed to broker a cessation of hostilities agreement, briefly. The cessation of hostilities agreement was essentially meant to be a ceasefire, uh, but didn't last very long, and was marked by both sides breaking the rules of the ceasefire, and essentially preparing for more conflict. Ceasefires can be useful if they stop fighting for the purposes of allowing dialogue to proceed. But ceasefires are simply that. They are a pause in a conflict, they are not an end conflict in itself. And um, the Indonesian military in particular was quite impatient with this ceasefire. So, there was uh, meant to be a meeting in, or there was a meeting in Tokyo uh, which was essentially to deliver an ultimatum to the Free Aceh movement. Half of the Free Aceh movement negotiating team had been located in Banda Aceh, the capital of Aceh, essentially under house arrest, but they were in a hotel and they were allowed to remain there for the purpose of negotiation processes, to be able to negotiate. And there was an agreement with the Indonesian government they could stay there. On their way to the airport the indonesian military arrested them and put them in jail so half of the GAM, the free action movement negotiating team was in prison and uh, when the other half got to tokyo they were given an ultimatum surrender or be destroyed and they said well we're not going to surrender this is not a negotiation they then launched a massive military operation, uh, dropping in somewhere around 70,000 troops in the space of a couple of weeks, a few weeks, and launched a massive uh, on-ground military campaign to try to wipe out the free movement. Now, that campaign was effective in that it put the free movement on the back foot, but there's an old saying in guerrilla tactics that to survive is to win, that is whilst you're still alive, if you're alive, you are winning. By, by, by simple fact of you managing to survive, you're, you're, you're continuing the struggle and continuing the struggle is victory in itself. So after a couple of years of this, it seemed that the Indonesian military wasn't making much progress. There was an election in Indonesia in 2004, uh, which saw Megawati lose office and the election of Cecilio Bumunyediono as president. Now Cecilio was a former military officer, he'd been a minister in a couple of previous governments, but he was also uh, a former military officer and he was the leader of the reform faction in the military, the faction which wanted to get the military out of politics and to clean it up and to make it into a professional organisation. He was also, I think probably still is, a democrat. Uh, as in he was very strongly in favour of genuine democratisation, deepening it, strengthening it. And he believed that that was not able to be pursued in Indonesia whilst the TNI, whilst the Indonesian military, continued to have a role in domestic politics via its role in uh, internal uh, stability or maintenance of internal stability. Uh, So he, he... believed that finding peace in Aceh was critical to the further entrenching of democratisation in Indonesia and the further reform of the Indonesian military. So he uh, oversaw the introduction of the peace process. The actual process itself was delegated to the Vice-President, Yusuf Kala. uh, And Yusuf Kala's history had been in negotiating a resolution to the Poso conflict of a couple of years before, in, um, in Sulawesi, uh, there had been a communal sectarian violence between Christians and Muslims there, which had gone on for about a year and a half. It was very bloody, and Yusuf Kala was involved in uh, having that conflict resolved. So he was delegated with responsibility for overseeing this negotiation process. The Friache movement was contacted. Um, initially, they didn't bite, but eventually they agreed. The peace process was agreed to, as I said, then the tsunami came, and that really pushed the process along. That gave it an impetus that it certainly would not otherwise have had, an urgency that it would not otherwise have had. And whilst it wasn't the reason, or the sole driver for the outcome, it was certainly a significant contributing factor.
0: Moving to you personally now, I'm fascinated to know how you would um, go about determining even who to contact in the first instance, um, how to ingratiate yourself with, um, with those involved um, and how to think about um, the, the process uh, going forward.
1: Uh, Okay, thanks. Good questions. Unfortunately, they probably cross over into the realm of trade secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's um, how how to contact people, how to find them, how to gain their trust. It's a complex process, but I've been lucky. I've managed to do that, not just with the free HR movement, but with a number of organisations in different places at different times. Um, And there are techniques uh but and and people some people uh i guess not unreasonably think that because i have done this that i i am not who i appear to be and the indonesian government said that quite clearly they thought i was a spy uh, an intelligence agent for somebody not the australian government uh, because the australian government didn't have an interest in the conflict it just wasn't relevant And I have been called that on a number of occasions. Interestingly, I was called that once by a person from the World Bank, partly in humour, but he he mentioned it, he introduced me to a former senior Australian general who himself came from an intelligence background. And um, this former general laughed and said, he's not a spy, I've read his file. I, I, I am not, I never have been an intelligence agent. I ex- have exchanged information with uh, other academics, with journalists, with um, occasionally with government people. Not often, because they mostly they don't want to speak to me. Um, but that's a, a free exchange of information that goes both ways. No money involved, I'm not employed, I don't take instructions or directions. Um, but having said that, I think the ways in which one ingratiates oneself and becomes trusted by organisations, armed non-state organisations, probably has parallels with work done by special services operatives in the past. Uh, And I'm thinking in particular of um, the uh, special services who were involved in the war, the Indo-China war, The American-Indo-China War, not just in Vietnam, but particularly in Laos, uh, where there were some military personnel who went and lived with and worked with the Hill Tribes, the Hmong in particular. And um, so I guess there's some parallels with that type of work. I think the difference is, of course, I wasn't training anybody. Uh, I wasn't seeking to use them for an ulterior purpose. I was simply trying to understand what was driving them. And as I got to know them better, I formed friendships. I saw that they had some considerable legitimacy in their cause. And of course, as I mentioned, I was still pretty angry with the Indonesian military for what they'd done in East Timor. So I felt that if I could assist the free art movement, then for a number of reasons, I probably had a personal duty to try to do so.
0: And I mean, the impression that I get is that you you were entirely independent. That there was absolutely. no organisation behind absolutely. Absolutely, that's just fascinating.
1: But yeah, no, no, I did it entirely independent. I was an academic. I was employed, um, and this sort of work uh, was part of my conventional research. Uh, inter- interestingly though, I've written a number of book chapters and um, journal articles on it, but I've never actually, apart from a, essentially publishing my diary from the time of the Peace Talks, I haven't written a book on, on Arche as such. Um, so I probably haven't had as much output, if you like, as I possibly could have, but I have certainly gotten a lot of published material out of it. And I, I did undertake it initially for the purposes of research, and indeed the process was one of um, a participant observer. I think they call that. Uh, it's a form. It's a legitimate, legitimate form of social uh, methodology. Uh, that you actually get involved in the community that you're researching, and you live with them, and you work with them. And I guess that's what I did for quite some time.
0: What were the state of affairs at the time that you left Aceh and, and how have they sort of progressed since then?
1: Well, when I was last in Aceh, in a formal sense, uh, it was pretty appalling. It, it was... Um, the, the conflict was at its peak. Uh, the Indonesian military operation against the Free Aceh movement was at its peak. Um, the local people were suffering quite badly. They were being uh, to say they were being bullied and intimidated doesn 't begin to describe the brutality uh, that was perpetrated on the people of Aceh. if people were believed to know about Frauuche movement and most or many needs certainly did know members of the Frauuche movement or sympathetic or whatever they would be t- taken away and tortured and usually killed. Um, I was there when in a town uh, the day after the local police chief dragged the body of an inform- of a suspect through the streets, tied to the back of his four-wheel drive. Um, he'd been questioned, tortured to death, and his body was dragged through the streets behind a car, the main street, behind a car to demonstrate to others what would happen if you were engaged with the Friache movement. Um, people were found in all sorts of grotesque circumstances after having been tortured and murdered Uh, i I won't try to describe it but the brutality was extraordinary it was exemplary but it was extraordinary and it was widespread that was when i was last there legally after that um, a colleague of mine a research colleague was arrested uh, and i spent quite a bit of time helping to get her out of prison which we were successful at after about five or six months Um, unfortunately in order to get her out of prison I had to assume responsibility for things that she had done Uh, she was being I think it's fair to say I think she was being reckless and behaving in a manner that I would consider to be unethical Uh, for that reason I won't name the person involved but Having her in jail was of paramount importance, and getting her out was of paramount importance. So I assumed responsibility for some of those matters. And I said, no, no, it wasn't her, it was me. The documents that she had were not hers, they were mine, so on and so forth. So that probably didn't help my standing archery, or with the Indonesian military, or the government. So after that, I didn't go back. Uh, I gave a talk in December 2004 in Sydney, in which two Indonesian consulate uh, officials were present. And they reported back to whoever. And I was thereafter formally banned from entering Indonesia. But this was within what three, four weeks of Uh, the tsunami, the peace talks process and so on. So that didn't really matter anyway. I did go back to Indonesia during the middle of the peace talks. Yusuf Kala, the vice president, invited me back. Uh, Interestingly, the Minister for Legal Affairs, Hamid Awaludin, had to come to the airport and actually get me through the immigration process. So because I was arrest on site, I guess, uh, was my status, that the uh, Justice Minister had to come to the airport and say, you cannot arrest this person. He actually has to go and see the Vice President. So I got through uh, and had that meeting with him. But I was only in Jakarta for a few days that time, but it was a very tense time because the milit- the Indonesian military knew I was, there. I was there. Their thought, I think, I understand, I was informed by others, was they wanted to catch me and kill me. So it was a very um, tense few days playing cat and mouse. And then I managed to get out and, uh, uh, of course, uh, stayed away for some time. I have subsequently been back. I have been back legally, even though the ban still applies. Now, I've been banned from entering Indonesia now for coming up for 14 years. I have been able to go back to Indonesia a few times, or to Aceh, and it has been legal because I have received a stamp in my passport saying I was visiting, and my passport is a legitimate passport, has my name in it, my photograph. Um, so the immigration officers at that time regarded me visiting friends as le- a legitimate purpose. Whether or not they reflected government policy or Indonesian military policy is perhaps another matter. But sometimes one can have friends in appropriate places to be able to do that. So I have been back to Aceh a few times subsequently and it's been um, great to see the place, not in a state of warfare, where people can go about their business freely and happily, where industry and normal living uh, flourishes certainly relative to the military period. Uh, The place still has many problems. It's still a, you know, a remote Indonesian province. It still um, it it still has issues, but it's certainly doing vastly better than during the uh, wartime period.
0: Other than having obvious Nerves of steel
1: um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, uh, and
0: uh, quite considerable mental uh, fortitude how How does one go about um, preparing themselves for for this kind of work if, oh. if, if that's something that well i'd never
1: done it before, and what I discovered was because half of the free HM movement negotiating team had been locked up, they'd lost their uh, Probably going to sound conceited when I use the term. They had lost their key intellectual, their key thinker. And uh, they, were, they were struggling. The, the, the few who were left, um, you know, great people, smart, uh, resilient, hard workers. And, but they needed assistance and they said that. And I've got to say I worked extraordinarily hard. I've never done it before. It was learning and making up as we went. Um, It was constant. It was... uh, I've never ever worked so hard in my life. I mean, it was frantic amounts of work and crunching information and ideas and planning and replanning and drafting and redrafting and... But we got there. And um, we got there, I think, because we ultimately were better prepared uh, and because the... Indonesian negotiating team were in a sense behind the wave, and we were ahead of the wave. Uh, They were still coming from a military default perspective the state is always right, Um, you must do what you're told. And we were coming at at the negotiations from a perspective of the state is changing, democratisation changes the way in which people negotiate within the state, uh, that the military is no longer a legitimate actor in these circumstances, that they are actually part of the problem, not part of the solution. And we, we played it. Uh, I think we played a better game than the Indonesian government did. So whilst I think it's fair to say that the outcome was a win-win, as in the Indonesian government won in the sense that Aceh remained as part of Indonesia. The Achenese also won in that they were able to end the war on terms that they felt were honourable. And that was the term they used. So uh, a high level of regional autonomy was essentially what they had wanted from the outset, from the late 1940s. And they achieved it in 2005. So... Whilst it wasn't independence, it was enough. And they felt that they won. So, with both sides feeling that they won sufficient. And this is part of the uh, negotiated, negotiation process, it's substant- something I've subsequently learned. Um, I think a friend of mine used to say, experience is the hardest teacher. First, it gives you the test, then, it teaches you the lesson. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for that. It was very much a test. And w- reflecting on the test, we learned the lessons uh, and uh, one of the lessons we learned was both sides have to feel like they're going to come out of it not with everything but with enough and uh, that was how it was ultimately resolved
0: such a shame we have to think about bringing this episode to an end <laughs> I, I just have one final question and it really is just whether or not you have any final observations or anything that you think we may have missed, something that you'd like us to know about yeah, look, the process? Yeah, look, I
1: think um, it's important to recognise that for a negotiation negotiated end to a conflict to be successful, both sides have to ultimately want the conflict to be resolved. It's not always possible, even if both sides want it. Um, their visions of what the future would look like might be simply too divergent. But if there's not some basic common agreement around wanting to be at the negotiating table, then you're wasting your time. you need the stars need to line up. you need to have everything work in your favor in our case, we had the international community put a great deal of pressure on the Indonesian government and on the free Arche movement, both um, you just you know we had a, a president who was pursuing an agenda of reforming the Indonesian state and the Indonesian military, which we took advantage of. uh, That doesn't always work out. So I've had subsequent experiences, some of which have been successful, one of which was quite successful, one of which was similar to the Aceh outcome and one of which was a complete disaster. if, as I said, if, if if the parties to the conflict have views which are ultimately too divergent, then a resolution is not necessarily going to be available. It doesn't always happen. Then these processes are not always successful. Uh, in the case of Sri Lanka, it was not successful. I, I believed I got the Tamil Tigers to within a couple of inches of agreeing to a peace settlement. Um, but they held out for an impossibility. And the price they paid for holding out for that impossibility was they were ultimately destroyed, with the loss of, at that time, some 40,000 lives. So I have to say that constitutes a failure. And again, one learns lessons also from the
0: failures. Absolutely fascinating. Damien Kingsbury, thank you very much. For joining us on the podcast today it's been my pleasure thank you very much thank you for listening to episode four of the Dyson House podcast join us next week for episode five and don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode